Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill into his hands, nor the binder to sheathes his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy August to those worshiping with us here in the worship center, online, all over. It's good to be together, uh, but especially for those in the building this morning, I want to acknowledge that none of us are thrilled about COVID seemingly surging back to being a significant inconvenience or more in our lives. I don't know about you, but it was a little bit of a gut punch putting that mask back on this morning after thinking that those days were just about over. And listen, I also get it. You know, you may or may not be convinced that the CDC and IDPH are warranted in recommending that we all mask up in public indoor settings again. Just two things I'd like to say along those lines before we begin. First, thanks for cooperating anyway. Uh, we're doing our best to be faithful to the Lord. We're going to keep monitoring the situation. Your cooperation has kept us from division. Second, I do feel compelled to remind all of us what we've been saying, but it bears repeating every so often. We've chosen now for 16 months to follow the CDC and IDPH, uh, not because we necessarily believe that all their guidance is always perfect, but because we believe Scripture calls us to do so. Romans 13 calls us to submit to the governing authorities, not because we agree with them. Right? Did the church at Rome always agree with Emperor Nero, who was in charge at the time that Romans 13 was written? Uh, now, the call to submit is actually an expression of our submission to Christ, uh, despite the fact that we sometimes disagree. And so, just so that you all know, each time the CDC or IDPH puts something out, the elders aren't asking each other, hey, do we agree with this guidance? But rather... Does submitting to this guidance violate our ability to submit to Christ? And if the answer to that question is, well, no, it doesn't actually violate our ability to submit to Christ, then we've chosen to submit to the authorities. So let's remain diligent for the sake of the vulnerable members of our church family. Let's keep praying that the Lord brings this to an end. In the meantime, let's not waver from the lane of submission that the Lord has called us to run in. Let's pray. Lord, you're big. And you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. When it comes to Olympic basketball, 80 years now of history have uh, led the United States to expect smooth sailing. I mean, I guess it makes sense considering that we invented the sport. Uh, we had a little head start. But after winning 8 of 10 
Olympics on the women's side and 9 of 11 on the men's side, and that was before we started using NBA players, we now expect blowout victories. So what about 2021? It's a little too early to say how this particular year will shake out. We had a nice win yesterday, but on the men's side anyway, this year's Olympics got off to a rocky start. I don't know if you saw that, but after losing a couple exhibition matches and then losing our first actual game of the Olympics to France, members of the media started expressing at press conferences what many of us are feeling. Hey, this is supposed to be easy, right? What's going wrong? How does a team that's stocked with NBA players from top to bottom even have close games, much less losses? If you've caught clips from any of those press conferences, here's how Coach Popovich has responded, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but the gist has been, hey, maybe we've gotten a little spoiled. Maybe as the rest of the world gets better at basketball, what we're seeing this year is actually the new Olympic normal for the USA. We play close games, we face adversity, and hopefully we eke out victories in the end. I don't know if Coach Pop is right or wrong, but I wonder if a similar dynamic might be true for the church in America. Here's what I mean. I wonder if decades of relatively smooth sailing for Christians in America have spoiled us, have lulled us into thinking that the path of following Jesus is supposed to be this red carpet lined with roses. I probably don't have to tell you that Christians in most of the world don't share that expectation. And even Christians in America haven't always shared that expectation. Actually, as you look back at the history of God's people, from the days of Abraham to the days of Moses to the judges, King David, the early church, the story of God's people has been an almost unbroken story of affliction. The exceptions, actually, historically, are those brief moments in which God's people did not find themselves under intense attack. But... The corollary to that is that the story of God's people has also been the story of God delivering his people from affliction. And that deliverance is what God's people would recount as they sang today's psalm together. Would you turn to Psalm 129 if you haven't already? Psalm 129. If you're just joining us, we're preaching this summer through the so-called Psalms of Ascent. This collection of 15 psalms that God's people would sing as they traveled up to Jerusalem for corporate worship. Today's psalm is a song about affliction, the experience of oppression. And you can imagine maybe the somber mood as God's people would sing this one while walking the road to Jerusalem, remembering that the road to blessing had rarely been an easy one in their history. The psalm acknowledges, you just heard it read, uh, that it's a fact. The story of God's people is not like the story of USA Olympic basketball in the 1990s, smooth sailing, blowout victories, but rather it's one of constant struggle and attack. Yet, we're going up to Jerusalem, aren't we? You can picture them maybe saying that to each other. Hey, but we're doing it, you know? Uh, just as God has paved the way for us to go up to Jerusalem this year, we have reason to trust that he'll keep watching out for us in the future. In that sense, Psalm 129 isn't just a song about affliction, but a song about trust in the midst of affliction. The psalm breaks down into two parts. Uh, the first four verses giving us a reason for our trust, and then we have an expression of our trust. We'll take those two in turn. A reason for our trust and an expression of our trust. First, a reason for our trust, and the reason is the Lord has freed us in the past. The Lord has freed us in the past. Look for that 
as I read, uh, reread verses 1 through 4. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Here's the picture here in those four verses, and and Old Testament scholars generally agree on this. You've got God's people being personified here in an individual who's lying face down on the ground. Can you picture it? And now you've got plowers hitching up oxen to a yoke that pulls a plow. So as the plowers drive the oxen across this individual's back, the plow digs into the flesh, cutting long furrows up and down the skin and muscles of the back. That's the word picture here. Imagine for a moment the torture. The pain of the continuous opening up of the flesh, all perpetrated by malicious people, wicked according to verse 4, who want to inflict this torment. I wonder how many here have recently come through a season of life that felt that way. Or maybe you're in a season of life that feels that way right now. Like, like I'm in anguish. Why are these people out to get me? How can I bring their brutalizing to an end? If you know that experience, you're not alone. It's a story of God's people, actually, from the earliest days when God chose a people for himself from the nation's youth, as verses 1 and 2 put it here. Affliction has been a constant. Here's the question that I have as I read this. Why would anyone want to remember such a history on purpose? Like, what would possess the psalmist to compose a song like this, recounting days of torment? Why not write a psalm about the glory days past or even about the glory days to come? Aren't histories like this best forgotten? Some of your parents, maybe, believe that histories like this are best forgotten. They had very difficult childhoods, and you know that in some sort of abstract sense, but you've never actually heard them speak about it. When you try to bring it up, they shut the conversation down. They'll say things like, I'm not a victim. I don't dwell on the past. And they found a way to survive, in large part, by clenching their jaws and resolutely moving forward refusing to ever look back in the rearview mirror. In an important sense, of course, you admire their determination and perseverance, despite the affliction that they faced in their early years. But in another sense, you wonder sometimes, maybe, at what cost they've buried all that past hurt. For those of us who are forget-the-past people, A psalm like this challenges us by raising the possibility that recounting past affliction might actually be an important exercise to engage in from time to time, not as a pity party, not as a way to make excuses, not to camp out there in woe is me land, but but for what? What exactly is the value that the psalmist sees in remembering past affliction? I think one part of the answer must be that the refusal to remember affliction 
actually robs God of glory that he rightly deserves. Refusal to remember affliction actually robs God of glory that he rightly deserves. Take a look again at those four verses and notice. This isn't just a story of affliction. It's a story of God delivering from affliction. Remember our individual here, this personification of Israel, lying face down, getting bloody channels plowed along on the flesh of his back? That's not the end of his story. Right? Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What cords? Commentators agree that the cords are the cords connecting the yoke of oxen to the plow so that when the oxen pull, the yoke plows. If the cord is cut, then the oxen can pull all they want. The plow won't move. It's not attached anymore. So reflect with me on that, on the significance of that word picture. It's not necessarily a depiction of God giving the plowers a change of heart. Or, but he can do that. It's not even a depiction that he somehow struck down the oxen, though he could do that too. As far as we can tell, the oxen here are still plodding forward. The plowers maybe are even still driving the oxen, hoping to inflict maximum pain. But to the person lying on the ground, there's no plowing anymore. Just harmless footsteps. The cutting is done. The intentions of the plowers have been frustrated. The detached blade has rendered them unable to torment. And so the healing can begin. Isn't that an accurate picture of the way that God so often brings deliverance to us, his people? Like our enemies hate us as much as they ever did. They're as determined as ever to hurt us, but their plans just somehow keep on coming to nothing. Example, the enemy says, I know, I know, Delta variant. Let's make them bicker about COVID again. Just when they thought they were out of the woods. Let's get them talking, vaccine, no vaccine, masks, no masks, right? This will split the church. But the enemy doesn't realize that the cords have been cut. The church survives. It even grows. The kingdom expands. People keep getting snatched out of the jaws of death and brought to new life. The gates of hell keep getting stormed by God's people who are filled with love and compassion for those who hate them. If we avoid talking about the pain points in our individual and collective histories, we rob God of the glory that is due him in light of the fact that time and time again he has delivered us out of those afflictions. And our silence also robs another generation of the chance to have their trust bolstered by the stories of God showing up to rescue his people in the past. If we never talk about the affliction, we never talk about the rescue. So tell your story, friend. And tell the story of the church, not just the Instagram-worthy parts. We've been afflicted from our youth, but the Lord has rescued us in the past, and that's one of the main reasons we'll trust that he'll do it again. Now, if that's a major reason why we trust, uh, then in the second half of the psalm, we see an example of an expression of our trust, an expression of our trust. The psalmist who has come to trust God prays to God in the second half of the psalm on behalf of the city where God dwells, and he prays against that city's enemies. Let's take a look at it. But actually, before we read it, though, let me prime the pump. I've realized lately I'm a little too interested in stories of neighbors being petty to each other. 
you know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't know why, I just find people's choices so fascinating, especially when they're being so incredibly juvenile to the people that they have to continue living right alongside. Example, so I have a friend whose family has tried really, really hard to be neighborly to their next-door neighbor. But, I mean, like most of us, they have people in their backyard sometimes, my friend does, at reasonable hours, at a reasonable volume, and their neighbor just cannot stand it. So, once, and this is just one of many stories about this neighbor, it's amazing. Once this neighbor stuck a hose under the fence between the houses, turned it on, and left home. So once my friend noticed his backyard was flooded, and he couldn't get her to answer her door, they had to call the police to come turn her hose off. And I'm just like, what has to happen in someone's life to bring them to the point where they think, I know the way to communicate my frustration. I'm going to put a hose under my neighbor's fence to flood their backyard. I would love a chance to just like sit down and interview that person. Anyways, here's the question. Is what we have here in verses 5 through 8 just the Christian version of intentionally flooding your neighbor's yard? Let's read it. Verse 5 through 8, it's a prayer. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's call this what it is. It's a prayer calling down curses on those who hate Zion. Curses on those who desire to harm God's people gathered in God's place. The psalmist wants these opponents to wither like grass that doesn't have a deep root. Verse 6. To wither so completely that nobody would ever walk by and say, hey, nice harvest. Verse 8. But here's my question. Is asking God to flood someone's yard really any better than sticking the hose under the fence myself? Right? You ever think about that? Three reflections on that question. First of all, yes, it is better. <laughs> Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded that we must leave payback to God. He'll vindicate us in his timing, but it's not our place to take matters into our own hands. When God's people have taken matters into their own hands, God has not blessed those efforts. So asking God to do the vindictive thing you'd like to do is better than you doing that vindictive thing. Second, before we rush to deem verses 5 through 8 unloving, remember that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. In fact, if love is one side of the coin, hate is often on the other side. For example, if I told you, I love Jewish people. But then I visited, visited Auschwitz, and all you saw was indifference on my face. Like if no hate welled up in my heart toward what happened there, you'd rightly question whether I really love Jewish people, right? You can't love Jewish people without hating the Holocaust. And there's something like that happening here. The more deeply we love God, the more hatred we'll feel toward the plots and schemes that are orchestrated in vain to dethrone him. And the more deeply we love God's people, the more anger we'll feel when we see the plowman tearing away the flesh on our brother or sister's back. All that to say, the intense emotion expressed in verses 5 through 8 
may actually spring from a love that runs quite deep. Third, verses like this are a reminder that our God doesn't scold us for laying our hearts bare before him, even in all our raw passion. So we say something to God, like what we have here. Paraphrasing, God, I just wish you would snuff out the people who have wronged me, verse 6. And I wish you'd embarrass them first, verse 5. Not only does he not reprimand us for that prayer, he literally says, hey, let's include that prayer in the Bible so that God's people can sing it for generations to come. When was the last time you dared in prayer to venture from your same old polished script to tell God how you really feel, what you're really struggling with, what you'd really like to see happen to those who have wronged you? God's sensibilities are not offended by your raw disclosure. He sees it there in your heart before you say it anyway, but when you say it to him, now he has a chance to meet you in that place, to do a work in your heart from that authentic starting point. That's why I labeled this section an expression of trust. Uh, To pray this way, the psalmist has to trust, first off, that he's praying to a God who wants to deliver his people, but also he has to trust that he's praying to a God who's big enough and gracious enough to hold an unrefined prayer, prayer that's bursting with raw emotion. There are a lot of people who could and would utter the statement of trust that the psalmist utters in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. Fewer people would be willing to put their money where their mouth is by praying with the sort of trust that the psalmist prays with in verses 5 through 8. It's a reckless abandon, like, Lord, this is me. This is what I'm feeling in all of its good and bad. I'm going to show you what's in my heart and put this prayer in your hands. Do what you want with this prayer and do what you want with me. That's what the psalmist is doing, verses 5 through 8. Isn't it freeing to know that we can do that? Not only that we can do that, but that we're encouraged by our God to do that. Now that we've seen a reason for our trust and an expression of our trust, our big idea, let's trust the Lord to set us free from oppression. Let's trust him. He's done it before, and it's on that basis that we can believe he'll do it again. Let's trust the Lord to set us free from oppression, and let's pray like we do trust him. The road our Savior calls us to walk, friends, it may not be easy. In fact, despite several relatively persecution-free generations of American Christianity, following Jesus is rarely like the journey of Team USA, the basketball dream team of the 90s. Jesus himself told us that wouldn't be the norm, right? Because you're not of this world, the world will hate you. That's John 15. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. That's 1 John 3. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's John 16. It might not be going too far to say that biblically speaking, the question isn't why you and I have to face hatred, but rather why there's ever a time when we're not experiencing hatred. So I don't know what's coming. In America or in the northern suburbs of Chicago, it's possible that we'll soon find ourselves in major trouble with the law for holding to historic Christian beliefs. Likely, many of us will at least experience social exclusion, mockery, 
being passed over for jobs, those sorts of miniature furrows being gouged in our backs sometime during our lifetime. And while we do well for the perspective-shifting sorts of words, such as in Hebrews 12, to ring in our ears that in our struggle against sin, we haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood, those miniature afflictions do hurt. They're painful. Don't you love that we have a God who gives us songs like Psalm 129 to sing in the midst of that pain? But as we sing the words of Psalm 129, let's look to the one who embodied this psalm. Within a thousand years of when this psalm was written, the furrows were quite literally etched into his back with the Roman whip, the cat of nine tails. You've heard about it. They used bits of metal and bone to pull off long channels of flesh. Thirty-nine of those lashes. That's what Jesus endured. Here's the one who had every right to take vengeance into his own hands. But what did he do? First Peter 2 tells us, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He did that to be our example, yes. But even more so, he did that because he was on a mission to pay for our sins in his body on that cross. As the Romans tore his body apart, that wasn't even the worst thing he was experiencing at the moment, if you can believe it. His heavenly Father was also laying on him every sin you and I have ever committed, allowing Jesus to suffer in our place, the absolute hell that you and I deserved. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe close your eyes for a moment and see him there allowing the furrows to be carved into his body for you. To understand what's happening in that moment, you have to realize, as terrible as it is what's been done to you in your past, you have a bigger problem. And that's that you have willingly participated in the evil you see in the world by going your own way and rejecting the God who made you and loves you. But there's good news. The God you've ignored wasn't content to be separated from you eternally. So he went to the greatest lengths to pay the price for you to be forgiven. Won't you accept his free gift of forgiveness for your sins? He paid it for you. All that's left is for you to tell him that you accept the gift. And you can do that even today. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, my prayer is that our gratitude for what Jesus did for us when those furrows were etched into his back, that, that will increasingly shape how we endure our own affliction. May we not forget his past deliverance such that we freak out when we face trials. And may we not take vengeance into our own hands, but follow our Lord in entrusting ourselves to the one who will one day vindicate us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that's a promise that we can take to the bank, that you will judge justly, that you will vindicate us, that our cries will not go unanswered forever, that the furrows that have been dug into our backs uh, will not be ignored. Lord, you are big, you're in control, and you're also good. You love us tenderly. 
we're so incredibly grateful for that. And we remember the times in the past, in the history of your people, and in our own individual histories, when you have delivered us from affliction. And that gives us hope that you'll do it again. Help us not to waver in our trust that you'll do just that. And if there's someone here who has not yet placed their faith in you, help today to be their day, that they cross over from death to life and experience the forgiveness that was purchased at the cost of your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.